we're, we're often not arguing about the things that we actually think we're arguing about. And so a really great question is to ask, okay, and what do I make it mean when I feel triggered? And it's a question to ask, not just in relationships, it's a question to ask in our daily lives, right? If, if your boss triggers you at the workplace when they say something, okay, well, what did you make what they just said to you mean about yourself? Because that's how we can really source the deeper roots of these triggers. And when we start asking just that question often enough and kind of listening to our own internal world more, we'll very much see that these are usually unresolved patterns from the ways in which we grew up and the things that we were exposed to that we didn't heal. Hi, I am your host, Raquel Ark, and welcome to your Listening Superpower podcast. This show opens your mind on ways to transform challenging conversations into opportunities for clarity, connection, and ease at work and at home. Discover how to grow your listening superpower to help you become a more effective communicator. Be inspired by conversations with authors, scientists, and leaders that will help you grow your leadership toolbox with strategies that you can use right away. Let's work smarter and feel better with our listening superpower. Have you ever thought about how our subconscious patterns and limiting beliefs impact how we communicate at work and at home? In this episode of the Listening Superpower podcast, Tyce Gibson, the creator of the integrated attachment theory, gives us insight on how our subconscious patterns impact how we make meaning and communicate. Her innovative framework unites traditional attachment theory, developmental psychology insights, and the potent subconscious reprogramming techniques. She shares stories about how subconscious patterns can be managed for healthier relationships, and she gives us tips on expressing our needs, on setting boundaries, and on fostering connection. Tice has nearly a decade of experience running a successful private practice, and she also has a diverse experience in modalities such as CBT, NLP, somatic experiencing, internal family systems, and shadow work. And this has influenced the Personal Development School, which is her educational platform that integrates an innovative coaching training program, which is based on the integrated attachment theory framework. It has thousands of members from all around the world, I think around 110 countries, and the satisfaction rate is 95%. So we're really happy to have her on the Listening Superpower podcast. And she shares some frameworks that will help us to even notice how listening is impacted by our subconscious patterns and what we can do about it. Welcome to the Listening Superpower podcast, Heise. It's really a pleasure to have you on this episode with me. Thank you. I'm so grateful to be here with you. To start the podcast, I'd love to know when you first noticed the power of listening, whether it worked or it didn't. I would say from a very young age, I probably noticed the power of listening. I, I sort of grew up in a family household where there was a lot of chaos. And I think for some reason at a young age, I would sort of be very present with each of my parents in their chaos. And I would notice that that seemed to kind of mute the chaos a little bit. So when they would have a big argument, you know, often they would both sort of vent to me a little bit. And I'm not necessarily saying that's the healthiest thing for, for anybody listening or young children. But for me, 
I noticed that it would really help them both feel a sense and, and source of calm when I would be very present. And I think I grew up sort of playing that role. And so that's actually been a big feature of my life. I can definitely be a chatter and, and a talker, but I definitely, as well as, you know, somebody who actually worked in client practice for about 10 years and saw 40 clients a week, you know, I think the power of listening is something that not only calms people, but helps sort of become a mirror into people as well, right? If somebody's really with another person who's quite present, I think it allows them to see into themselves and to almost like be more anchored into themselves as a result. So I think listening is a very powerful thing that's very underrated in a lot of different forms. But I love what you're saying is that there was chaos around you. Yes. And that was actually, as a child, a survival technique of listening and presence to help the chaos, you know, get some anchoring or grounded or calm down or whatever. And you're right. Maybe it's not always what you want to do as a child at the same time. What a beautiful technique to bring into current situations when there's chaos around us, people arguing or challenges at work. And instead of reacting to that, what if we would just bring listening in, Absolutely. listening with presence to help that chaos shift? Absolutely. And it's funny because I grew up pretty much my whole life. I think because I developed that sort of coping skills as a young child, I would always be in places like bookstores or coffee shops or airplanes or, you know, public spaces. And people would always come up to me and tell me their life story. Like I remember being, I remember being on an airplane ride once and I was 12 and I got separated from my, my mom on the airplane. Like we were just a few rows apart. And I had this, uh, this woman and I remember she started telling me all about how she's getting divorced. And for like an hour on the airplane, she was like telling me all about her divorce and this and that. She started crying. And I remember sitting there thinking like, maybe I should tell her that I'm 12 years old. And <laughs> because I didn't know, like, you know, if I'm saying all the right things, I was like, I think I should really tell her my age. So she doesn't expect me to like have answers. But I, I do think that there's also the power for, for pe people to feel comfortable when, when somebody's really present, right. And to really open up and actually be able to share. And of course that's meaningful in, in relationships and, and plays a huge role in a lot of different ways. It's, it's interesting to look back at, you know, that experience <laughs> as a young person and how that has impacted you today. So when you look back and you look at the work that you're doing, which we'll get into in a little bit, when you look back, how did that listening piece guide you in what you're doing today? Yes, I, it definitely played a huge role. I think a lot of my, my childhood and upbringing honestly played a huge role because I spent a lot of time wondering as well, like how can we have an experience in relationships that doesn't have to be so chaotic. Like if people love each other, why can't there just be this sort of connection? Um, and why can't there be more peace? And, you know, I had, I had a lot of these sort of burning questions for a long time. And I think it allowed me to be really interested in human beings, really interested in people and, and truly, you know, I think if we're really interested in something, it's much easier to become more present with it. So, you know, I think from a young age, I was sort of gathering information and, and, you know, that listening component was really meaningful. And, and I think that led me down the path of being in client practice for a long time and then um, creating the business that we have today. What is, is that your driver? Is that what drives you in your business? I would about, say so. Yeah. I would say so. I would say it really has to do with um there I would say so I, I worked in client practice for about 10 years and then I've been in, in the business I'm in now, which is still very people-based, client-based for the last five years ever since. And for me, 
which has been so interesting. And there was some overlap there too. When we started my business, I was still in my client practice. But for me, what was so interesting as a lot of, as I would sit down with clients, you know, week to week, I found that I really loved one-to-one work, but when I started working with couples and I would actually, and I spent a lot of time focused in that area and I could get them to communicate past their huge like wounds or fears or pain points and really see and understand each other's side to things and then form strategies and steps to like move through whatever the conflict was that would choke me up. Like I would really have to spend a heart. I would have to focus a lot of energy on not crying in the session because it was so beautiful. And I think for me, it was almost like something that subconsciously I wished that I probably had access to as a child and didn't. And it definitely put me down the path of really wanting to gather those tools as an adult and something that helped me tremendously in my relationship and, and having a functional and healthy relationship. Now it helped me a lot and it was beautiful to witness with, with clients. So it definitely really hits home for me. I'm sure there's some people listening right now. They're like, tell me what the, what is it that, <laughs> what is that strategy to help me <laughs> with this conversation with my partner at home? <laughs> and can I share a little bit about that? Cause there's actually yeah, some beautiful sure. things. I think because of like, it really links to the topic that we're discussing. So I think because of presence and being able to be really present and being able to really listen and, and really kind of deeply assess things something I noticed is that we're usually not talking about the thing that we think we're talking about. So I can remember having this experience and I had this, this couple come in, they've been married for 10 years, 12 years, somewhere in that range. And um, they had two young children, the, it was a husband and wife and the wife worked part-time. And then she really did a lot of things around the house and the husband worked full-time and he was definitely like more of the provider of the family, the breadwinner, things like that worked very long hours. And he was very sensitive and she was very sensitive too, but she was very fiery. She was, she was feisty about things. I remember that they were in my office and they were having an argument about the laundry being on the floor. During this argument, she was like, I always tell you to pick up your clothes. Like you don't do it. The laundry's on the floor. And she started shaking and I'm watching her like visibly shake. And as she's getting really angry and shaking, she's not yelling, but she can tell she's just so mad he starts getting so like sad, like his whole body language shrinks, almost like a little kid kind of like sulking away. And I was watching them and I was like, there's no way they're both this upset about clothes on a floor. Like, like there's no way it's about this. And I think we're never really arguing about what we think we're arguing about. And so I asked her, I said, okay, when he leaves his clothes on the floor, what do you make that mean? And she said, well, he disrespects me and he doesn't care about how I feel because I've asked him before, and he's not doing anything about it. And I said to him, because I noticed him getting really upset. I said, you know, and when she starts getting angry like this about the clothes, what do you make it mean? And he said, well, I make it mean that I'm trying so hard. I'm doing so much for our family and I'm trying to provide and I'm working long hours. And I feel like it goes unnoticed and I feel unloved. So here we have two people talking about clothes on the floor, but what they're actually talking about is feeling disrespected and not cared about and then unloved. I think that so much of our conversation that happens as human beings, you know, we're, we're talking about these superficial things, but if we get more present and we investigate a little bit further, it's really these underlying wounds that we're feeling. And what's also really interesting is that these underlying wounds usually actually take shape and have their original roots in childhood. So if we actually looked at her history, you would see that she had a lot of issues with her father feeling disrespected and not cared about as a child because he left the home and there was a lot of inconsistency in how he would try to 
spend the time with them, with her and her siblings. And for him, he actually felt really unloved by his mother growing up because she was very distant and disengaged. And so, you know, we have these sort of really interesting dynamics where we first start arguing and we're talking about things that are never going to solve the argument because you're never going to solve feeling disrespected, not cared for and unloved by discussing clothes on the floor, right? That it's, that's not a way of approaching the issue. And so instead, when we can go underneath that and understand what we're actually talking about there and source those things, and, and then what I would get them to do. So this became like a, a, you know, what do you make it mean when when you're in conflict is sort of the first step, right? Because it's never about the clothes on the floor or the dishes or the gas or, you know, whatever it might be. And, and when we can source that and then we can communicate about that, the next thing I would get each party to do is we have to validate each other's feelings. So when we glaze over those things, when somebody says, I feel disrespected and not cared about, First of all, there's a different meaning to the laundry, right? Now, the husband in that situation wasn't sitting there going, oh, like you're making a mountain out of a molehill because it's clothes on the floor. Who cares? He's going, oh, my goodness, my wife feels disrespected and feels like I don't care about her. And so the next step is to really be able to validate that person's perspective and say, hey, see why you would feel that way. I understand now that you feel that way. And, and to be accountable for that, to apologize. And then I would get her to turn around and say, can you see how when you get really angry, that he feels unloved and like his work and, and his effort goes unnoticed. And for her to turn and be able to validate that and say, yes, I actually do see that. And I'm sorry, I didn't realize that, that you were feeling this way. And then we talk about, okay, what's a strategy going forward to demonstrate care and respect in the relationship? And what's a strategy going forward to demonstrate appreciation for the work that's that's going on? And so we're able to actually source like the roots of things. Validating each other's feelings is a massive part of actually resolving conflict because we can we can disagree with behaviors, but still validate feelings. So we can say, hey, like I see that that you know, you feel, let's say, for example, somebody doesn't call somebody back and, and they're dating and that upsets them. We can say, hey, you know, when I get angry at you for that, I can see that you feel hurt and I can understand that. And I still need you to make an effort to call me back. Right. So we can we can validate feelings behind things without validating the behavior. And that's where it really brings us to then we have to make a strategy to improve the behavior in the relationship, which is much easier to do when we've heard each other's actual wounds and grievances around the situation. I mean, that is huge. What you, I mean, that's a huge, what you just talked about and how it goes from something that seems to be on the surface, this, this initial argument to actually this, this really deep stuff that's happening in a big way. And what I think is interesting about when you describe that is, you know, often we say, Hey, you're not listening to me, you know, because you threw, you did it again, you threw the clothes on the floor or whatever, but actually that's not what, what, that's not the meaning they're actually making. Yes actually they may not even fully be aware of what they need. And that's, you know, so that whole process is helping them to actually listen to themselves. Absolutely. Besides and understanding each other. Absolutely. And, and it, it's almost twofold. Like they're not only not understanding what they actually need, kind of going to that third step of like, what do we need to feel re resolved in the situation or to experience relief, but they're not, they often aren't listening to themselves in terms of what they're actually feeling the clothes on the floor, the clothes on the floor, the clothes on the floor. And they're not actually hearing like, no, no, no. Like, Hey, when you leave the clothes on the floor, I experience that as being disrespect, or I feel like you don't care about my opinion because I'm communicating this to you and, and it's not going anywhere. And and so we're, we're often not arguing about the things that we actually think we're arguing about. And so a really great question is to ask, okay, and what do I make it mean when I feel triggered? And it's a question to ask 
not just in relationships, it's a question to ask in our daily lives, right? If, if your boss triggers you at the workplace when they say something, okay, well, what did you make what they just said to you mean about yourself? Because that's how we can really source the deeper roots of these triggers. And when we start asking just that question often enough and kind of listening to our own internal world more, we'll very much see that these are usually unresolved patterns from the ways in which we grew up and the things that we were exposed to that we didn't heal or didn't really get an opportunity to. So if we have a big wound of feeling not good enough, and that's usually what we're making something mean, usually we have roots of feeling not good enough because we had very critical parents, for example, or we saw a lot of criticism in our household. Or if we're constantly making something mean, oh, there's an inconsistency and I'm about to be abandoned, you know, usually we felt some sort of abandonment in childhood that we didn't get to really resolve. And interestingly enough, if you take it a step further, the exact things that we project onto our situation. So our boss says something, we make it mean I'm not good enough, or I'm unsafe, or I'm abandoned. Because we were imprinted by those things in childhood and because they're unresolved, they're a part of our own programming. And usually they are the very same things that we are doing to ourselves on autopilot all week long oh on a regular gosh. basis. So you'll see- but Can you give me an example of how, like yes. just so that our listeners understand, what do you mean by that? Because I think this is, Absolutely. I think whether we like it or not, this is there's a lot of truth in what you're saying. So could you give me an example so that we yes. can, that's clear for our listeners? Yeah. So I really never saw an exception to this. So I saw thousands of people in client practice, like, and and I never saw an exception to this. So we'll go back to the, the laundry example. So we'll call those clients, you know, I want to, don't want to share their, their personal names, but we'll call them Anne and Bob. So Anne, you know, her wounds where I'm disrespected, I'm not cared about, but Anne, she was constantly disrespecting her own boundaries. She was constantly disrespecting her own needs. Like she would really suppress her needs for everybody in her life. And she really wasn't caring about herself. She would chronically put herself last, put herself on the back burner, put everybody first. So what happens is, you know, our subconscious mind is responsible for roughly 95 to 97% of our beliefs, our thoughts, our emotions, and our actions. Our conscious mind, which is really our logical thinking self that has the ability to kind of logical, logically analyze things, rationalize things, that's actually responsible for three to 5% of our lives. And so what happens is our subconscious mind is running the show. And another thing that's important to note is our subconscious mind will always win. The conscious mind cannot outwill or overpower the subconscious. So we have these patterns we get imprinted with and they become our identity, even if we didn't ask for them or we don't like them. So if we got our, our needs disrespected or feelings disrespected growing up, well, that's that we internalize that and that often becomes the relationship we have to ourselves. So not only will those be the things that we are most wounded by in our relationships with others, because when somebody hits that hot button, it really hurts. But on top of that, we tend, it becomes our subconscious comfort zone. Our subconscious mind wants fami familiarity because it equates it to safety and survival. So if we felt disrespected, we will become the disrespecters of ourselves. And then the moment someone else disrespects us, it's like the straw that broke the camel's back. And you'll see this in, in multiple different relationships for people who tend to be really afraid of abandonment in relationship dynamics. And somebody doesn't call them back or doesn't text them back enough. And they go, they're going to abandon me. And they're upset with the person, you know, you didn't call back. It's not 
not about the not called back. It's that I'm scared I'm going to be abandoned or that something's changing. You know, that person, when you look into it, is usually the biggest abandoner of themselves. They're usually terrified to spend time alone with themselves. They don't know how to be present with themselves on a regular basis. They don't know how to meet many of their own needs. You know, this cycle continues where we internalize the experiences we have. We become, if it was from our parents, for example, we become our parents to ourselves. We reenact these patterns on a daily basis and then we project them out onto our relationships. And the moment somebody else hits those triggers or those wounds, they become things that we become very touchy about as adults and actually can really cause the downfall of our relationships. And you think about all this stuff that happens in work, the politics, all this messy stuff that happens and how much that might come from or how we perceive how my boss or, you know, whatever that actually that can come from something that's, you know, or how someone reacts to you that has nothing to do with you. It could be from these other things that come from childhood and whatnot or other experiences that they've had in the past traumas at work and stuff like that. Exactly. Absolutely. And if there's sort of a work example, one work example would be that let's say you felt criticized as a child. And so you grow up and you're really sensitive to criticism for, we have to ask ourselves the sort of question as well. Well, if that happened when I was eight and now I'm in my forties, for example, you know, we have to be able to say, well, how has it stayed alive for so long? How am I still so sensitive to criticism? If that the past has been gone for decades and decades, well, in order for the pattern to still be there and the wound to still be there, we actually have to have had to be firing and wiring those neural pathways over and over again on autopilot all the time. So you can pretty much guarantee that if you're still sensitive to something, you've been doing it to yourself. In other words, if you were made to feel not good enough, you're probably very self-critical all day as well Mm -hmm. if you're still sensitive to it as an adult. And so in the workplace, if your boss gives you constructive criticism to your group, three out of the four people are kind of okay with the constructive criticism and it's really landing painfully for you. There may be a wound there that because we're so critical of ourselves, the moment somebody mirrors that back to us, it can be very painful. But all of those things are giving us feedback because they're all giving us when we have the opportunity to listen to our feelings instead of try to escape them. We will learn that those are mirroring to us the relationship we still have to ourselves. And when we change those things in our internal reality, they will not affect us in our external reality in the same way. You know, as you were talking, you know, I've heard, you know, in with clients and stuff like that, where who maybe they're okay with receiving feedback, but they're afraid of giving feedback. And now they're, you know, team leads and they're thinking about how to give someone feedback who's performing not well or needs to perform better or whatever. And every so often, you know, I don't want to hurt their feelings or I don't want to, you know, these messages, which are actually not true because it depends on how you do it and how you approach it. Not only the receiving the criticism, but also how to give let's say feedback as one example, or the fears behind that probably come from some of these experiences as well. You know, I'm just thinking. It's exactly the case. It's just in a different form. So, so, you know, usually the actual wounds there, which are so funny are usually like, I am bad wounds. So we have different core wounds, but, but if we have a lot of guilt and we are hypersensitive to feeling badly about hurting somebody, You know, I think that we live in a world that has conditioned us to be like, be endlessly selfless, never hurt anybody ever. And as somebody who was very much of that conditioning and was terrified of hurting people's feelings, I've personally learned the hard way that that usually just makes you hurt your own feelings because you enable people for so long. 
And then you get terrified of taking up space. And so in the end, really, you're so you're so afraid of seeming like a bad person by hurting somebody's feelings. And it's just the core wound again. It's just like feeling not good enough or feeling betrayed or feeling afraid of abandonment. I'm afraid of seeming like a bad person. So I'm just not going to say much at all. And I think the reality is, and I spent a lot of personal time working on this, is that we have a dysfunctional relationship to pain. You know, pain, when you're willing to look, you know, if it, I, I would get clients to do this exercise sometimes when I was running my practice and I would get them to sit down. People who are really afraid of pain and really afraid of hurting other people because this is work that I did is to sit down and write 10 of the most painful experiences that you had in your life. And then to sit down and ask yourself a few questions about them. What did I learn from this experience? How did I grow from this experience? What was I forced to let go of that was no longer serving me in this experience? What did this experience show me about myself that I wasn't otherwise paying attention to? And what would the cost be had I never gone through that experience? And what ends up happening is, is and, and this was my experience when I did this work on myself, is I look at some of, the, some of these things, I had all these, oh, that was so painful, that was so hard. And they were some of the most beautiful things that ever happened to me because they were some of the things that grew me the most and developed more wisdom or more insight or, you know, and, and sometimes hard things are there to actually level us up to the next, you know, stage of who we're about to become. And so I think what happens is when we have this one-sided relationship to pain, we think, oh no, pain is so bad. And then if we also have this core wound of, oh my gosh, I'm a bad person. If I say anything that's negative to somebody, then we we walk on eggshells our life. You know, we, we never really tell it how it is and say things. And in, in the workplace, you know, that's going to lead to burnout. That's going to lead to frustration. That's going to lead to resentment when we don't communicate. And so I think it's healthy to say, you know what, even if we are concerned about giving negative feedback, we can structure it in a really healthy way. We can be mindful about how we deliver that feedback to people. Sometimes that feedback is very meaningful to somebody and can actually help them out a lot, even if it hurts, even if it's not comfortable. Sometimes those can be the best things we do for people in our lives. And so as, as long as we go about them respectfully, I think seeing them from a holistic perspective, instead of just, oh my gosh, negative feedback is exclusively negative, that can also help us to feel more open to communicating with others. So I have a question for you. What is your experience, you know, working through these deep questions and becoming aware? What's your experience of people trying to do that by themselves versus having someone to talk to or work with? So to, I know some of those are deep, but ha have you had experience on what happens when maybe not the core wounds, but like to be able to talk about how the, their feelings and stuff like that with others, how that helps the process of healing, even in a business environment? I'm not sure. Yeah, no, I think it's really important. I think it's very powerful. I, I think that like there can be a lot of beautiful work done through reading, through journaling, through like taking courses, through gaining insight. Like I think there can be so much beautiful work done that way if we know how to be really present with ourselves, if we're practicing really sitting in things and, and being mindful. But of course, the more we have somebody to guide us or to mentor us through that, I think is beautiful. And and I will say I'm a little bit biased on this because as somebody who was a, who's a counselor and went through the whole sort of training, one of my sort of bones to pick about the Western world was that a lot of it is very give the man the fish rather than teach a man to fish. And yeah, it's sort of like, true. oh, I'll do it for you. I'll take you through it. I'll yeah. be there every step of the way. I think that sometimes in our Western world, at least specifically around things like talk therapy, I think that sometimes the model that's built in there fosters a little bit too much dependency. 
And I think with something as important as emotional literacy, personal growth, like emotional regulation, like but it, like to me, that's such a valuable thing that affects so many areas of your life that shows up in your career and your relationship to so many different people in different ways that I think there should also be more of the teach the man to fish, but that can be something done and created within a one-to-one environment, right? That can be something where you have a mentor, a guide, a counselor, a therapist, a psychologist, and, and that person takes you through that and teaches you to empower yourself. So as long as that's done correctly, it makes a hugely meaningful impact for sure. Yeah, I guess that's part of the, the the learning journey, the experiential journey. That's the journey of doing it and having to do the work yourself. But you know, so you don't have to be alone in the in the process. But at the same time, you have to do the work. Can't be done for you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, when you look back at your business and where your business is now, you know, even in the last five years or so, what has been your biggest learning or biggest surprise that maybe you didn't realize um, then? compared to what you know now? I would say there's been a lot. It's so hard to nail down down like just one. I would say that one of the most important things to me and, and that I'm very grateful for is I, I, so I ran a private practice and obviously there's like a business element to that, but I had no business training on like how to run a company, like hire employees, have to let people go if they're not a good fit, how to interview people properly, how important it is to actually like vet people effectively. You know, sometimes I really like people in the interview and I'd be like, oh, they're missing a little bit of this and this, but you know, I really like them. So we'll bring, and and okay, that's not a good choice. <laughs> you want to make sure I learned that one the hard way sometimes, you know, so there's, there's, there was so many learnings. I think the positive learning was actually that I was a lot better prepared than I thought I would be to go from like self-employment to like, like a, like owning a business, like a company, because I got so much sort of skill building in client practice. Cause you just learn so much about yourself from working with people. Cause they're always mirroring things back to you that you didn't realize about yourself. So, so I think I was very prepared and how much business is really just relationships at the end of the day as well is quite impactful. I think on the flip side, I mean, I've been humbled a thousand times over by things where like <laughs> we've done, we've done a lot of work the past couple of years on um, setting up like growth tests for our company. So when you, when you change anything, right, you're going to first have to run it as a split test, like run an AB test, make sure that before you make a variation on a landing page or on an email copy or whatever it is, wherever it's going in your business, you have to actually run a test and see like how people respond to that better. And that was something that we really implemented into our business the past couple of years. And I can't even tell you how many times I was like, there's no way that this one will win. This one's way better. And then I would just be like blatantly wrong. So that was like a big standout lesson. And, you know, it's interesting too, because, um, you know, we, every relationship, this is sort of originally based off of the work of Dr. Susan Johnson. And she talks about how we have different stages of relationships. And I sort of separated out like the dating and the honeymoon stage, but we have a dating stage, like a vetting stage, getting to know somebody, a honeymoon stage, we're kind of in a relationship with somebody. And then we go through power struggle stage. That's where obviously statistically most relationships fail. If we make it through that, we go through stability, commitment, and bliss stages. The bliss stage ends up being like the honeymoon stage, but sort of later on in the relationship dynamic. And funny, funny, funnily enough for me, 
you know, I obviously saw those stages as being very evident with my husband, you know, when we first started dating, we moved, we had our own power struggle stage. We had to hash things out more, talk things through. And something that was really interesting is I have a business partner and like, we went through those stages. And <laughs> it's interesting that like each of our relationships in the workplace, everywhere ends up having, when we get into closer relationships and we have to make bigger decisions with somebody, if we get close enough to somebody and we actually have an attachment formed, we'll go through all of those stages in those places as well. And so I think sometimes we think, oh, there's a power struggle or there's, you know, we're having more conflict than usual, or like we have to talk things out more. And I think that can be scary, but the beauty behind that is actually that like, well, that's strengthening your relationship. You're learning how to communicate better. You're learning each other's sort of like concerns and fears and insecurities. And if you keep talking those out, you'll be stronger because of it. And that was a journey that I definitely had with my business partner as well. You know, we were talking yesterday and we were like, you know, I think we talk anything out at this point. Like we'd make it through anything that sort of comes because because you learn and 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 it's it's a beautiful experience to have and to know that like, again, like conflict or, or hard times are not always bad. They're sometimes really growing us in powerful ways. So are you in the bliss phase or are you still working there? <laughs> towards I think the bliss phase. I don't know. I don't want to jinx it, but I think bliss phase for sure. <laughs> because I have a lot of, um, for me, it was really how trust was built as well. Like, I don't think we just like, I, I think when we trust there, there's a lot of research on trust and, and there's sort of this discussion about we have how we have like an internal trust baseline as an individual first. So for me, for example, I had a lot of like trust violations as a child. So until I actually like repaired a lot of that, I had kind of like a fragmented internal trust baseline where I would kind of like be suspicious with people at the, out of the gates more, more often. You might take somebody who grew up in a fully securely attached household and they might have a better set point from which they trust. Right. So I had to do a lot of work on that individually, but then we also have our own trust and people will be like, Oh, is trust given or is it earned? And it's like, it's actually both. We have like an individual baseline. We start out at usually based on our own history and conditioning, but then we have like earned trust and earned trust happens through hashing things out, through having conversations, through being vulnerable to somebody and telling them, hey, this thing bothers me and seeing them make the effort to not do that again, even if they're not perfect and, and vice versa, to, to actually build something in terms of a relationship long-term, vulnerability, openness about your insecurities, your fears, all these different things, your concerns, your pain points, that's a requirement. And so um, that's part of making it out of the power struggle stage as well. And it's part of, I think, how we actually feel more connected to people in a deeper way, because if we're always just like the mask is on, we're on our best behavior, we're not really sharing meaningful things, then we don't really get an opportunity to be understood or known at a deeper level. And so, yeah, that sounds nice. Hey, so I just, I know we're getting to the end of our time, but I, you, a while back in our conversation, you said that what 95% of our behaviors are subconscious. Is that right? Yes. 95 to 97%. Oh my gosh. So what is it that we do to bring it to the, to shift that percentage or is it possible? You know, what is that? You know, I know you mentioned the journaling or questions, but, but um, yeah, how do we shift that? How do we get to the point where we're actually able to become more aware, more conscious to work through some of that stuff? Yeah, it's a really great question. So, so it's, it's not that we will you, like, so 95 to 97% of our, our, daily life is ha habitual, right? Our subconscious is like the habitual mind. And so it's not that we're really going to change that metric per se. It's not that we're going to like suddenly become 80% is now conscious. If you think of like the difference between conscious and subconscious, conscious would be that 
I am choosing something through my logical thinking self. So, so if you imagine for, for example, that somebody, they say, I'm going to quit eating chocolate after new year's since it's my new year's resolution. And then by day four or whatever, they're back to eating chocolate, you know, and it, we could call that like self-sabotage when somebody's quote unquote self-sabotaging, they're not like, Oh, I can't wait to go home tonight and break my new year's resolution and eat the chocolate. And who cares about my new year's resolution? Or if we procrastinate something, right? We're not going, I'm just going to procrastinate. I'm just going to sabotage myself, you know, or if we have a habit we want to break, like somebody yells in a relationship too often, they're not like, Oh, you know what? I'm about to yell at my partner. And that's going to be <laughs> right. These are not conscious cho- choices. They're habitual programs that get fired off. And so, so it, it's, we won't actually change that, that amount of what is habitual. What we will be able to do is rewire the habits that we don't like. So for example, if somebody has that, like, let's going back, go back to like the not good enough core wound. If somebody has this, I am not good enough idea about themselves they're going to jump to a lot of conclusions. The moment somebody gives them criticism or feedback or pulls away from them, that wound is going to get projected out onto their reality because your subconscious is sort of like the lens you see the world through. It's like whatever programming is in there, you're kind of projecting and interacting with the world through those programs. So it's more that we will be able to look at what's not serving us. And we can look at that by number one, starting to notice the emotions that are coming up and asking ourselves, okay, well, what am I making this mean about myself? It's a great way to gain insight into your subconscious programs. And then number two, we can actually ask ourselves, well, can I really hundred percent know this to be the case? So we can start questioning some of these things on a regular basis. And then number three, if we decide that we actually want to recondition something, the subconscious is reprogrammed through repetition, emotion, and imagery. So the subconscious doesn't speak language. Like if I say, please, whatever you do, do not think of the pink elephant. You thought of the pink elephant. And that's because your conscious mind hears do not. Your subconscious mind hears pink elephant and it will fire off that image. So so your subconscious, like when we do affirmations and it's like, I'm good enough, I am good enough. That's not really that meaningful because we're just doing repetition. We're not really getting emotion and imagery and our subconscious mind doesn't really speak language. So instead, when we want to recondition a parrot, like a program at the subconscious level, let's say an old core wound, for example, we want to use memory because in every memory is contained emotion and imagery. So if I were to say, tell me your favorite childhood memory, you would start talking about it and you would smile and you would, you would see the images of that memory in your mind's eye. So when we want to actually rewire these old programs, let's say I'm not good enough, I'm unsafe, I'll be abandoned, whatever it might mean, whatever it might be, you would do the opposite. So you would go, I'm not good enough, I am good enough. I'm abandoned, I am connected. I'm unsafe, I'm safe. I will be betrayed, I will have loyalty, right? So you want to have the exact opposite. And then we want to leverage repetition, emotion, and imagery. So we want to come up with 10 pieces of memory, even recent memory, like what happened earlier today, memory for why you are good enough. I showed up this way at work. I did this thing with my boss. I was this way with my coworker. I was this way when I got home. And when you give that to yourself, when you actually have these little memories, you're leveraging the images and the emotion contained within them, how you felt proud or empowered after speaking to your boss or on your way home from work. And so we're actually firing and wiring totally new neural paths. And if we do that for 21 days, we pick a core wound or an old pattern. We do that for 21 days. Research shows it's extremely effective for reconditioning these old paradigms. So we can have these wounds for decades and decades, but within 21 days, if we make a little routine out of it, 
wake up in the morning, 10 pieces of evidence for why I am good enough or why I'm worthy of connection, you know, and we find those little pieces of evidence, it can totally shape our lives in a really profound, positive way going forward. I love that. And I would, I would, I'm just curious, like if you're a team lead and you notice that one of your team members or someone that you're, you're leading, it has a core wound. So you become aware of this and you recognize that they're reacting because of a core wound, but you don't want to be their psychologist and you don't want to, you know, do that. But you also recognize that emotions and, and images and, and repetition, repetition makes a difference. Is it possible to like feed, you know, help them talk about things that go well. I'm just thinking Absolutely. like when they no, do I, stuff, you have them do it. Well, you have them share it. You know, you acknowledge the emotion, help them put words to the emotion and to help. And you do that consistently. You might see them change over time. 100%. That's exciting. It, Everyone listening. Very powerfully <laughs> in all of our relationships, including workplace relationships. Wow. And not only that, but people will usually, when you're going against their core wound, they'll really, you'll find that they take to you a little bit more because it's yeah. really me for them. So they'll feel safer and more open and they'll go back there for more of that, that reinforcement. And it can actually help very much shift people's behavior over time. Yeah. So, which is a huge deep listening piece. So, and presence being fully present and listening, not fixing, not fixing. Yes, (laughs) absolutely. Oh, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the listening superpower podcast. If people want to get in touch with you, how do they do that? you so much. It's been so nice to be here. So you can check out uh, personaldevelopmentschool.com that we have sort of a list of everything there. And I put daily content out on YouTube um, under Thais Gibson. So T-H-A-I-S Gibson. And then, and we'll put the links in the, in the notes for anybody who's listening. And um, I think we can, I really love the work you're doing and I really appreciate you being here today. Thank you so much. It was so nice to speak with you. I'm your host, Raquel Ark, and you have just enjoyed your listening superpower podcast. This is an independent show, so please show your support by subscribing, leaving a five-star review, and sharing with your friends. I love to hear from my listeners, what you love, what questions you have, any great guests that you have for the podcast. Email me at listeningsuperpower at gmail.com or send a voicemail at plus four nine. 173-234-0722. Check out listeningalchemy.com if you want to help your team communicate more effectively together. We focus on evidence-based listening strategies and we do it in a playful and experiential way so that your team can work better and feel better together. Thank you, Cecilia Mercado, for your amazing podcast production. Ivo Tiemann for your inspiring music and Dorte Streicher for your impactful artwork. It's been fun and see you on the next episode.